You're listening to the Irish Times Roisin Meets podcast. My guest this week was Min Jin Lee, who is a Korean-American writer and her work frequently deals with those topics. Pachinko is a best-selling book already and it's a real page-turner. It centres around four generations of a poor Korean immigrant family who are fighting to control their destiny in 20th century Japan, exiled from a home they never knew. It's a really timely read with so many millions of displaced people around the world at the moment and one reviewer described it as a hymn to the struggles of people in a foreign land, which I think is beautiful. I began by asking her why it took her so long to write this book. Min Jin Lee, thank you very much for coming in. Roshin, thank you. It's 10 years since your last book. Um, and this book is such a sprawling history over many, many decades. But apparently you when you get you started it and then you sort of gave up after a bit, first of all. Oh, I, you had a full start. Yeah, actually, from 1996 to 2003, I had an entire manuscript that was completed about the Korean Japanese. Yeah. And it wasn't very good because it was really dry. And it was kind of a, a victim's manual. And I felt very strongly <laughs> that the Korean Japanese had been oppressed and I wanted to make a point and I had written this entire manual. However, it wasn't a novel, so I didn't actually ever send it out. And then I wrote my uh, first novel, which was eventually published. How does that feel, though, when you spend, I think you said seven years, it mm-hmm. sounds like, working on something and to come to the end of it and say, nope, I can't, I can't put this out. You feel it, like a fool. <laughs> but, you know, I think that one of the things that I learned from a really famous psychologist is that apparently women take humiliation very well. And I think that if you're a writer and you're a woman, you have to take humiliation very well. <laughs> so I have just accepted the fact that I don't work very quickly. Okay. And that I have been rejected quite a lot as a writer and that what I do is so unusual that I just sort of have to accept the terms and it's going to take longer and it is what it is. And so when <laughs> you were writing were you because you worked as a lawyer as well were mm-hmm. you were you doing that job and then writing sort of at night or in the mornings or? Oh no no I actually quit being an attorney for I, I was a solicitor for two yeah. years and I was a very low level solicitor so what I would just do is primarily read documents, and I was very good at that because I would catch everything. I'm kind of neurotic. <laughs> <laughs> but then I, I had a very serious illness for a long time. I'm very well now, but I had it for a really long time. And What did you have? I, had a, I was a chronic hepatitis B carrier, oh, so I had cirrhosis, and the doctors were very serious about the fact that I couldn't work in that way. So I decided that if something bad were going to happen, I might as well do something that I enjoyed. So I thought I would write a novel, and that would be very easy. Of course, that was <laughs> folly. <laughs> I love it. Just write a novel. Just write a novel. And the kind of person you are, you don't just write a novel, as as we know. So you came back to the book, and you came back to it with a different perspective, and that you knew it needed to have more life and richness of emotion, and, and maybe not to be so defined by the suffering of these people. Exactly. So, so was it a completely fresh start then? Well, what happened is kind of like, I guess what you you would know very well is that when I interviewed the Korean Japanese people in Japan and I visited all those places, I realized that what I had read, which were primarily anthropology and history books, were completely accurate, but they didn't reflect the people at all. Mm. Because once I started talking to people, I realized, no, they're actually quite funny. They had a lot of vitality. And they actually thought that I was getting upset about things, with which didn't upset them. Their attitude is, this is the way things are. Why are you getting so upset and so angry about the fact that there's this injustice? And I would go, that's not fair. And they would say, 
that's the way it has been for a hundred years. So you adapt. Mm. So I realized I'm writing a book about resilience and struggle rather than oppression. So just give us a little potted history. I know it's very condensed, but just about that um, struggle of, of Koreans and in terms of the way that they became sort of exiled. And especially when they go to Japan, they're kind of placeless and looked down upon as second class citizens. So trying to assimilate, but not. So how did that happen? I mean, I suppose sure. when, you know, Japan annexed uh, Korea. And that's, that's exactly how it happens. The inciting incident is that Japan annexed Korea because Japan doesn't have much arable land. So Korea became its breadbasket. Ah, okay. So then they took over and they had they controlled it from 1910 to 1945. And during this time, there was an incredible economic migration because there's such poverty in Korea because the Japanese took most of the land right. and they took most of the produce. So the Koreans, in order to survive, they ended up moving to the colonizer's country to make a living. And they did a lot of work that the Japanese did not want to do. And some of them were forced to come. And so, for example, in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, tens of thousands of Koreans were bombed um, because they were working in mines and digging um, tunnels. I didn't know that, actually. I didn't know there was, yeah. Yeah, tens of thousands. And they were not the enemies of the state. They were actually just essentially war prisoners. Yeah. Incredible. And that's where the book starts. It starts in that early 1900s, around that time. So tell us about Sunya. Sunja. Sunja. So tell us about her. She's a young teenager. She has quite a nice life. Her father's this fisherman Mm -hmm. and she meets this not very good guy. Well, she meets a very charismatic, powerful businessman and she thinks that he's, you know, amazing and interesting. And she falls in love with him and he seduces her. She becomes pregnant. And then she thinks that he's going to marry her. And of course, he's married and has children somewhere else. (laughs) Yeah. So then she's kind of outraged. Um, Later on, a tubercular minister who stays at her mother's boarding house, they nurse him back to health. And he offers to marry her because he thinks he's going to die anyway. So he figures he should do something with his life. Yeah. And they move to Japan. So her migration to Japan is atypical. Okay. It is not the way many other people went to Japan. She she goes because she's ashamed and because she's female and she's young. She wants to protect her mother from an embarrassing pregnancy. Mm. And that story then, I mean, the book really is is about that, isn't it? It's about that kind of finding a place and trying to fit in somewhere where you're not wanted. And I suppose it's very timely in the story that we hear so many of now, of migrants, of people trying to create better lives for themselves and not being helped by the host, by the country that they're, they're going into. And is that what you wanted to explore? You know, it's funny because I guess I've always wanted to explore that. Unfortunately, right now in 2017, there are 65 million refugees that are roaming this globe and nobody wants them. Nobody wants them. And there are many places, including America, that have a lot of space for them Mm. and resources. And unfortunately, this issue has been timeless. It's evergreen, unfortunately. And what I have just learned from this micro community, because there are only 600,000 of them today, is that even after 100 years, in an incredibly wealthy country like Japan, the third world's largest economy, they still are unwanted and they're considered troublemakers, deceitful, criminal, lazy, slothful, everything that you can imagine. They still believe this about the Koreans. It's terrible. Like, it's so racist. It's racist and it's really surprising. It's really surprising because... They have certain kinds of Koreans that they like. So they'll say oh, things right. like, I so like South they? Korean soap operas. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but then they don't like their neighbor who lives down the street. So it's a kind of saying, like, we have exceptional people that we like of right. that group. But then we don't like the people who have been here for over 100, 
over a hundred years. So, so the, the main character Sun Yat-jae's son um, sort of tries that assimilation way. He tries to become Japanese and to hide his kind of Korean past. He has yes, a wife Noah. and he has children, mm-hmm. but it's that kind of struggle because he never will kind of can assimilate properly. And there's always that shame and that hiding and that fear, fear of being exposed. Every single person that I interviewed had someone in his or her family who was passing as a Japanese, which meant that you could not speak to him or her. If you saw them on the street, they would have to ignore you. And they were not in communication with their families Mm -hmm. because it is so painful to be Korean for some people. And embarking on a project like this where you know it's going to take you from the 1900s right up decades later, is it not totally daunting? Is there kind of a... And and weaving all these different narratives of all these different characters in, did you feel that ever as a bit of an overwhelming task? Or We've already established that I can't be very rational. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's completely insane. I don't know what I was thinking. And as a matter of fact, if I had known Roisin that it would take this long, I don't think I would have done it. Really? If someone had said to me, it will take you... 20 years actively and 30 years of gestation, mm. I would have just run the other way, probably. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, obviously, it's something that you're particularly personally connected to because of your own story. You came from Korea, when, I think, when you were seven. That's right. To, to America. Do you, when you think of that time, I presume a massive culture shock or what was, what are your memories? As seven years old, you do sort of probably remember things from it. You know, I was a big reader always. So when I was a kid, I read all these books about Europe. And in my mind, I thought that America would be like Europe, but not Europe as in 20th century Europe. I thought it'd be like 19th century Europe. So I thought that (laughs) once I got off the plane, there'd be like stagecoaches and ball gowns and Cinderella (laughs) popping out. (laughs) I was really disappointed because I thought, oh, this was like a nicer soul. (laughs) But um, having come back, I think that you know, I, I did. I had a very, very modest background when we came to America. My parents were solid middle class people in Korea. My father worked for a marketing company. My mother's a piano teacher. But when they came here to America, they had no money at all. And I grew up in Queens where there's a lot of Irish Americans. Yeah. So I was living in this neighborhood with Irish Americans, Polish Americans, Czechs, Greeks, pretty much first generation. Mm. And it was such a lovely way to grow up because... We all had nothing. <laughs> so you didn't know that you were you didn't have things. Like I didn't know know that we were poor until I went to college and I met really wealthy people and I thought, Oh, I guess I was poor. <laughs> that was funny, kind of a shock. Isn't it? Yeah, it was kind I mean, of a Your shock. parents must have been so uh, keen for you to be educated. Was that a big part of your upbringing that you will go to college, that you will, you know, that you'll kind of come out of a situation that you'll better yourself? You know, it's funny because my mother went to a very fancy university okay. in Korea, and she's the opposite of a tiger parent. Oh, right. Her yeah, I wasn't is, trying to imply, but no, I kind no, of no, was. But it's, no, it's really interesting. It's very interesting because people always ask, oh, yeah. did your mother and your father pressure mm. you? And my mother is very eccentric because her attitude as a musician is you either have the talent and the will or you don't. Right. And in my family of three girls, I was considered the really slow one. And I didn't talk very well until I was in high school. Oh, okay. So I didn't really talk because English isn't my first language. And it took me a while to figure out how to speak because mostly I was just reading. Mm. So sometimes I can sound very formal because I sound like the way books talk, <laughs> which can help in radio interviews. But <laughs> but in, interpersonally, I think I was always that kind of awkward child because I would I either say the wrong thing or give mm. the wrong context. Having said that, 
I took all these public speaking classes. And Did you? Right. Mm-hmm. I took two public speaking classes and I joined the debate team because in America I figured out from reading that if you don't talk well, people think you're dumb. That's not the case in Asia. In Asia, women don't have to speak very well. But in the West, if you don't speak well, they think that you don't have a thought in your head. So I thought, I'm going to try this talking Business. Business. And, and you, you got on very well, as we can we can hear. You know when you say you went, you went to Yale, did you? I did. Um, and you talk about the kind of, the fact that you re- looked around and, oh, wow, these people are proper wealthy and yeah. realising your own circumstances. How did you adapt to that? Did you find that okay? Because of maybe growing up in that melting pot you described, were you okay with that and able to just blend in or fit in or did, did it take a bit of work? Well, initially I was really shocked because I didn't know that people had so much money. And I didn't know that people went to holidays all the time. I didn't know that you could have clothing that can cost thousands of dollars. Like, I just didn't know so many things. That said, there were these advantages of having been a working class kid because I had worked all my life. Mm-hmm. I knew a lot about personal security. I remember like all these kids would leave their dorm rooms open and have things stolen. And I would think, you're a fool. <laughs> Why wouldn't you lock the door? Of course you're going to have that stolen. So in that sense, it's kind of funny. And also, I feel pretty confident about getting around and doing things in the world and I could I could figure out how to solve problems and I think that was an advantage of being a working class person Mm. that said I wish that like for example I took a writing class when I was at university and it was um I was the only minority person in this entire class and everybody else had come from very proper backgrounds and they were talking about Stonehenge now, that may seem like something that's very obvious yeah. to a Western person. I didn't know what that was. Oh, okay. So I was 19, and I didn't know what Stonehenge was. And, of course, everybody in the room had visited Stonehenge. Because oh, they were all they were, they were all wealthy. They Europe had been traveling and... around the world. And I remember thinking, and at one point in the story, I was making a comment, oh, you know, Stonehenge, what is that? And I remember the entire classroom turned to look at me like I had, you know, come out of, <laughs> crawled out of a rock or something. <laughs> and... I really felt so embarrassed that I didn't know. but And then I realized later on, of course, well, why should I know what Stonehenge is? My parents, I was working at the store all the time. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, you probably, as you say, knew a lot more about other things than they did. And this is pre-Google, so I couldn't even look it up. <laughs> <laughs> I love Google images because I kind of think like, it's almost like I was there yeah, <laughs> because might, I yeah, saw it. <laughs> Going back to the book, it's called Panchinko, and that is a kind of m- weird game, which is like a mix between pinball and a, and gambling. a, slot, a gambling and a mm-hmm. slot machine. That's exactly right. And I suppose it's kind of a metaphor for the way all the people are pinged around and, and challenged and all that. Well, one thing as well that comes out is very strong female characters. Yes. And as much as it's a book about hardship and, and the struggles and the challenges, there's also that kind of very resilient, kind of enduring um, thing. Was that important to reflect that about the women who kind of did so much to keep their children, you know, alive and to give them food and to endure these terrible things. Was that an important part of it for you? Incredibly important because the first version of the book that I had written was about Solomon. So Solomon, who appears at the very, very end of the book, he's maybe about 10% of the novel. Mm. But when I went and interviewed all these Korean Japanese, I realized that all these illiterate women had somehow kept their families alive. And the way they did it was fascinating They often lived in tiny little apartments. Well, not apartments, like little houses, but they're rentals. Mm. And they would raise six to ten children. Their husbands were not allowed to work consistently because the government wouldn't let them. So if they were day laborers, they would be given, let's say, three days of work. So then the men couldn't support their families. Mm. So the women often ran distilleries. They would make moonshine. But if you made moonshine, you would be put into prison. 
but you don't speak Japanese. You don't read Japanese. So they would, be, they would go to prison, and they couldn't pay the fine. So they would often have to sit out this period. They'd get thrown back out. They'd be worried about their children the entire time. Their children could not do well in school, as you could imagine. They were wearing rags most of the time, living in essentially shanty town little spaces. So sometimes the children would go and collect uh, garbage food to feed the pigs because the pigs were living in these houses too. And when I learned about how these women, they're almost like beasts of burden because they didn't have any rights. They didn't speak the language. They didn't know how to communicate. They just knew how somehow to fight and keep their families alive. And I thought their lives were so much more interesting than the lives of the kids who grew up with wealthy parents in Japan, even as they were being discriminated against and they're seen as less than. Even today, mm. the, the first generation was far more interesting to me. So then I had to go back and restart the entire book, which was <laughs> and, kind of annoying. Yeah. <laughs> Serves you right. Yeah. <laughs> Serves me right. <laughs> we have to take a short break now, but when we come back, more from Min Jin Lee. Hi, I'm Cathy Sheridan, the host of the award-winning women's podcast. It's a twice-weekly look at the world from a female perspective, full of feminism, humour, politics, sex, storytelling, relationships and more. New episodes every Monday and Thursday. You can find us on irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts or on your preferred podcast app. What is it like now then for, for Koreans in, in Japan? I mean, you said earlier that they're still seen as, you know, I don't like my neighbour or it just seems amazing that that kind of endures in that way, that people don't at somewhere along the line say, you know, this isn't right to be treating people like this and maybe we better evolve our view of, of that. But there's still that, that sense, is there? Yeah, there's three kinds of Koreans in Japan today. Okay. Today, yeah, in 2017. You can have Koreans who come from the North Korean community and they're not from North Korea. They just have an affiliation with the North Korean government. Okay. So they'll actually have a card. They're four generations in. They're Korean Japanese. But they'll have a North Korean card, and they can't travel outside the country. Because if you are affiliated with North Korea, which does not have a Japanese... And they don't want to be affiliated with North Korea, I imagine. Some of them fair? feel quite strongly that they do. But then there's others who wish they didn't have this affiliation and could travel. Would that yes, be? and right. they become South Korean citizens. Okay. So they actually have South Korean passports. Four generations in, they're Korean-Japanese, but they have South Korean passports, like a red passport. Right. Or they could be Japanese citizens, like they become naturalized. Right. However, no one thinks they're actually Japanese, because in order to be Japanese, you have to be by blood Japanese. So if you are half Japanese, like my husband is half Japanese, yeah. he's not considered Japanese. So it's a, it's a very pure blood thing. It's kind definitely. of like... It's a, there's nothing definitely. you can do. You can't assimilate then. No, it's impossible, it's even after 100 years. What is the mentality of that, of not kind of opening up the place and allowing other people in and allowing everyone to kind of... I mean, I am sounding so idealistic here, but what, what do you... When you think about it, and you, you know these people, I presume, and you know a lot of people who think that way. Actually, everybody in Japan would agree with me when, they, when I say that people who aren't by blood Japanese are not Japanese. Okay. And they don't mean it as an insult. They don't. No, they that's okay. what I think is really interesting is that you and I may think that yeah. somehow we can be integrated and become, let's say, British or American yeah. or Australian. That's a really unique concept to very special places in the world. Most of the world still hold by these ideas of blood. And they don't think of it as insulting. Their attitude is, it's just the way it is. Yeah. You can't be Japanese you are a Japanese citizen. You may have legal protections of a Japanese citizen, but you'll always be ethnically Korean. And so, for example, if you married a Korean person, 
It's considered as something that you like. You're stepping down. Oh really? God. Anyway, but you you love uh, Japan, I presume, and you, you like going there still. Would that be? It's a fantastic place to visit. You really can't get a better meal. You should go. <laughs> <laughs> I think everybody should go visit Japan. But however, I don't know if I want to live there forever. What What don't you like about it then? I suppose well, all that what you've said for a start. I think that it was always sort of surprising to me that people, in, and I have to say that even if, even if I wasn't Korean, if I was a Japanese person and I had a child with a disability, if I had lost my job, it's a very tough country because there are no second acts. And you can't be ill. So if you're ill, you're outside. So even if you're Japanese by blood, yeah. if you are different, it's a very, very tough path. If your parents are divorced, it's a very tough path. So the country runs seamlessly on this whole notion of harmony, this whole notion of wa, W-A, wa. So it's a great thing. So that's why when you go to Tokyo, go to Osaka, it's really calm. There's no crime. And everything runs exactly on time. Like if you call the plumber, he comes 10 minutes early. It's brilliant. <laughs> However, if you have problems, if you're a little different, like if you have AIDS, you're out. But when you say you're out, where do you go? And what happens to all these people who have less than perfect lives, which is most people you're excluded. as far as I can say? You're excluded. Bullying is a terrible problem in Japan. You can ask any Japanese person and they'll agree with that. So if you're different, it's really tough. So I've met men who are 30 years old who've lost a job, let's say, as a hotel manager. They can't get another job because once you are fired, that means there's something wrong with you. So is that, uh, is that, that sounds like intolerance to me, like that only, you're only, the only thing we want is perfection. We only want people who aren't going to cause us any hassle or we're not going to have empathy for. It just seems like a very cold. Uh... It's a really tough place in that way if you are different. It's very, very tough. So imagine, so if you're ethnically different, that's like a whole other yeah. permanent difference because it's an immutable characteristic if you're different. However, I felt very sorry for people who had kids who were, ill or had disabilities or learning issues because in America or in the West there's so many things you can do mm. I mean as a matter of fact things like dyslexia can be really fixed yeah there's so many things we but, can but treat. there they wouldn't even give it a chance to it's really hard really really hard but you yeah. know what Japan's not the only place there are many countries like that where they're intolerant of people who are ill or handicapped and that's why I think when you are in a space like Ireland, and you can actually have acceptance and tolerance, you have to be really grateful. Like, I'm very grateful to be an American citizen. I am. Even now with Trump? Even now with Trump. Because if you take the long view historically, there have been very horrible presidents before. And Donald Trump believes that Andrew Jackson's his guy. And Andrew Jackson was a very racist person who wanted to bring slavery back. So... If we remember, <laughs> then we know that these things exist. And also, I think right now, people like Le Pen, Donald Trump, and um, even certain issues about Brexit. Like, I, I realize that Brexit is a complicated issue, but there's a certain segment of Brexit that's very racist. I think all those things come out of fear. People are really afraid in, in advanced economies mm-hmm. of the changes that are occurring in their lives. And rather than looking at the real sources, things like technology and disruption, they're actually blaming poor immigrants, which is irrational. Mm. It actually, like, you're kind of lacking logic in those equations. However, it's a simple thing to do. Mm. And politicians are exploiting these issues. And 
taking the low-hanging fruit of attacking people who don't vote. Yeah. It's very simple to attack, you know, Muslims or children or take away the rights of people who don't vote. Yeah. And you live in um, New York. I do. What's, uh, New York is very different in a way to, to most of the rest of America. Uh, what What is it like being in Trump's New York and, and having, I mean, even the thought of um, Trump Tower and just that, that whole image of him in that city, is it something people talk about at dinner parties or is it kind of, no, we don't talk about Trump or are people so upset? How, what's the... I think that it's all people talk about. Right. It's all people talk about. I think we're all still kind of, our heads are spinning. Because in New York, especially with intellectuals, the literati, the media, we're all just kind of like, oh my God, how do we get it so wrong? Because <laughs> we all got it so wrong. Two o'clock in the morning uh, after election day, I was staring at the computer going, there must have been a mistake. <laughs> and I remember my husband said at nine o'clock in the evening, no, 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 honey. She lost. <laughs> you should go to bed. <laughs> and I was like, no, no, no. I'm sure there's a miscount in Ohio. I'm going to wait. <laughs> I'm going to believe. <laughs> oh, God, you're taking me back to that horrible, horrible, horrible day, which yeah. I'll never forget in my life. Yeah. It was horrible. And I can only just imagine what it was like to be there in, in where it was happening. But we know? all got it wrong. Like, I believed in the New York Times when they had the little graph that said, she's got this. <laughs> I was like, all right, she's got this. I was really happy with the Macron election. Oh, yeah, that was that was a nice. That was kind of something. a relief. And yeah. I thought maybe we learned something. Well, exactly. Um, and then also Brexit happening as well was another shocker. You know? It was a real shocker. You spent a long time, obviously, very long time because you write very slowly. Uh, very, very re- slowly. Researching. And you've done an awful lot of research for the first sort of draft of it and then the changing one. What would you say uh, is the biggest thing you learned about that community and about what they were capable of in terms of, you know, really enduring and not just enduring, but thriving in, in, in some ways as well. What, what's your takeaway from, from I that? I loved how much they cared about each other. That was really impressive to me. And that's not reflected in history books or anthropology books. We don't learn enough about how poor people take care of each other. And I love that. And I was amazed by their loyalty, their vitality, and how much joy joy they took in small occasions, like weddings, funerals, um, occasions to get together with their families, and how much it meant because the outer world didn't really care about who they were, but within their own spaces, they still felt such great intimacy and tenderness. They felt a need to protect each other. And that was very moving to me. And I couldn't have seen that unless I'd interviewed people. Yeah, and that's the book you wanted to get at rather than the very dry sort of academic look at it. And also I was so focused before on right and wrong. Like yeah. I met so many people who are Japanese who are such great allies of the Koreans and they're reflected in the book. And I took mm. great pains to show how many Japanese people really cared even though the social norm allowed all this hatred. What about your parents? Are they still around? They are. And they, are. they must be very proud of you, are they? They what are they now. Think? I think initially <laughs> when I quit being an attorney, they were shocked. <laughs> Disgusted. Probably. What are you doing? My father's like, oh, I could have had a condo in Hawaii with what I paid in law school tuition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and she's only writing a book every 10 years. What's this all about? <laughs> she's so slow. <laughs> but they must be, even the subject matter, and for you to be exploring that, was that something they were interested in, in, in looking at as well. I think they thought it was weird. <laughs> and now that it's received this kind of, a you know, lovely attention, I think they feel like, oh, we're really glad that you did this because this is the first novel written originally in English about the Korean Japanese in the world. So 
that's either a good thing or a crazy thing. Mostly the whole time when I was working on it, I really thought it didn't exist because nobody wanted it. And what I'm really surprised by is the reception in places like South Africa or Australia or Hong Kong or Sydney. Like, I just, I hear about it from people all over the world. Like, mm. oh, it's about refugees. It's about immigration. Mm. It's about people who feel left out forever. Mm. And I'm really struck by it. Yeah, I think someone described it as a hymn to the struggles of people in a foreign land, which is mm. a very nice, Wow, that's simple. beautiful. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing to say. Did my mother write that? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe one of your sisters. <laughs> Well, listen, it's a beautiful book and I, I, I can't wait till your next one. That'll be another 10 years, 20, 27. Is it? <laughs> Have you got the next one in train or? I do. What, what's the idea? I've actually Can started you talk about it. Okay. Oh, absolutely. It's called American Hagwon and a Hagwon is a cram school. So in Korea right now, do you want to know the reason why all these South Korean children have number one test scores in the world? Yes. It's because at four o'clock after school ends, when you are 11 or 12 years old, you go to a hagwon, and a hagwon is a study center. And you stay there until midnight. What? Six to seven days a week. And your mother gets a, a dinner or a lunch service or a snack service for you because you can't come home. And they study the whole time. These hagwons are now appearing all over the world, including in England. They have it. I don't know if they have it in Ireland. Are they calling them hagwons? They're called hagwons. I mean, for those who know, they're called hagwons. If you're a Korean and you live in England, there's a hagwon. And they have them in New Jersey. They have it in Boston. And is it only Korean people who want them? Well, they used to be just Mm -hmm. Korean. But now you're having many people who want their children to study like the South Koreans. And they're sending their children to hagwons, which is very shocking for me. Because it's... No, I don't know if it's too strong. It feels like child abuse to me. You know, I thought so, too. And then I interviewed all these kids who went to Hogwans, and they, some of them loved it. And I said, why did you love it? And they said, well, I didn't want to be home with my mother. Well, Jesus, you can understand <laughs> that. I mean, they've got, they're very smart kids, not just because they've been in a Hogwan. They see what's what. Yeah. Like, if someone's going to send me here, they're not a very nice person for, for a start. But because... All the other mothers send them. They feel like they have to in order for the kids to compete. And what we're seeing right now in all these advanced countries is that the anxiety of parents for their children to compete in this global economy is so intense that all the children have to learn German or Mandarin. Chinese. I know. It's really shocking. And it's called American Hogwan. So is it about uh, one of those schools in in America then? It's about one of those schools in America as well as, I think, in London. And they exist in America now. Oh, yeah. There's many of them. them. Oh, New Jersey, New York. They have them everywhere. And you're, you've talked to lots of kids who are in them, have you? And I also talked to kids and tutors. So many of the tutors who work there are usually artists who cannot make a living in the arts. And they make these very really exorbitant fees by being tutors. So okay. I'm interviewing the tutors, the parents, and the kids. But the reason why I'm doing it is because my books are trilogies. So this is part of a trilogy. So Free Food for Millionaires is about yeah. the Koreans in America. Yeah. Pachinko is Koreans in Japan. And American Hagwon is about the role of education for Koreans all over the world. And then I'll be done. Well, that, is that going to be it then? That's, I'm going to Disneyland after, yeah. <laughs> I think you'd write a good children's book, actually. There you That's go. That's something that you could, you could look at, too. I'm, I think that sounds absolutely fascinating. And even the idea that these schools exist. And as I'm, I've got two eight-year-olds, and I'm definitely not a... Hogwan mother, I'm probably the opposite. I'm probably too much the other way, but maybe that's okay too. I just I hate the idea of children competing in that way. Because then where does the joy, is the joy in education lost then? Or is the kind of doing it for the sake of learning? Or has it all become a competition? I don't know. What, you know what have you found? 
What I found with kids like who are eight years old, they want to do what their friends are doing. So then when I did interview some of the people in Hagwans who loved it, I said, why did you love it besides the fact that you don't have to be in this room with your mother? <laughs> they said they like being with their mates. Okay. So then what they would just do is also they would play hooky. Okay. So on Wednesdays, they would go out oh, and I'm go eat snacks. Yeah, they would play Delicious. hooky on Wednesdays, and they wouldn't tell their parents. And sometimes the tutors would kind of like turn a blind eye because they didn't want the children to crack. Okay. So they had these sort of unenforced, you know, sabbatical Little, periods. Yeah, moments. Um, and you're in New York now, and would you stay there, do you think? Would you ever have plans to go back to, to Seoul or to, to, to go somewhere else? Or is that your home now? I've been thinking... Can you ever assimil- have you assimilated properly into New York, I should ask? You know, I feel so normal in New York. I feel really normal in New York. It's probably the place I feel most normal because people don't think it's a shock that I speak English or that I'm five foot eight because I'm kind of tall for my race. <laughs> 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 anyway, but... I think I feel really comfortable where English is spoken. So I feel really comfortable here in a way that I don't feel necessarily as comfortable in Tokyo. Because in Tokyo, people don't speak English very well. Mm. Whereas in Seoul, I actually have a really good time. But I don't think I could live there forever. I could definitely live there for a year. Brilliant. Okay, well, listen, maybe you'll come back in 10 years when you've got uh, Hagwon I hope finished. I come back sooner. I think it'll be sooner than that, will it? <laughs> you seem to have done quite a lot of research already. Yes, I hope so. And is that the way you work? It's like you you, you get all that those interviews in, and then and then you sit down, and those characters come to you out of all of the stuff you found mm-hmm. out. Is that it? And you know, it's funny, but Sanja didn't come to me until two thousand seven, whereas Solomon came to me in nineteen ninety six. So right. it was totally backwards. And have you got the idea for the for the person who's going to? I be? do. I think I do. But don't hold me to it. I won't. <laughs> American Hagwon is going to be amazing. And Panchinko is amazing. And thank you so much for coming in. Oh, really Rishi, appreciate thank it. Thank you so much. It's great. Thank you. That's all we have time for. The book is called Pachinko and it really is a very rewarding read. The podcast was produced by Jennifer Ryan with Jennifer on sound. I'm Roisin Ingle and I'll talk to you next time. 